welcome to the Weird Warriors podcast. I'm Max. I'm Rich. And on this podcast, we'll be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode in particular, we're taking a look at Weird War Tales number 44. But first, your good buddy Rich is here to hit you with some retroactive history and an intel report. I reached out to Sue Glansman about the Billy Ireland Comic Museum and Library in Columbus, Ohio. And she's going to reach out to them to gauge their interest in acquiring Sam's collection. While talking to her about it, she informed me that Sam had been awarded the Bill Finger Award for Excellence in Comic Book Writing. The Bill Finger Award was created in 2005 thanks to the late comic book legend Jerry Robinson, who proposed it to honor the memory of his friend Bill Finger. According to Mark Evanier, at the time, though everyone knew Batman and his supporting cast, not nearly enough knew Mr. Finger and his vital contributions to the creation of the beloved hero. Finger's name now appears on Batman movies and comic books, and we want to keep it on this award, as he's still the industry poster boy for writers not receiving proper reward or attention. Barbara Friedlander is also being honored this year. The honors will be presented at the Eisner Award Ceremony at this summer's Comic-Con. Intel Report. Gorillas. Created by Bram Rebel. Private John Clayton can only watch as his entire squad is massacred during a Viet Cong ambush. Frozen with fear and surrounded on all sides, the inexperienced new recruit is certainly the next to go. Until salvation comes in the unlikely form of seven shadowy figures streaking through the jungle canopy, an experimental squad of military-trained chimpanzees, armed to the teeth and taking no prisoners. Convinced that his best chance for survival is sticking with the chain-smoking simian soldiers, Clayton follows them on their mysterious quest deeper into the heart of the jungle, uncertain if these chimps are a stable fighting unit or an erratic and volatile pack of animals, and unaware that these chimps are not alone. On their tails, a squad of American soldiers tasked with capturing the chimps by any means necessary, the scientist responsible for the clandestine project, and the scientist's new creation, a monstrous baboon, fueled by amphetamines and driven by vengeance, in a war defined by its lack of clarity, telling friend from foe has never been harder. Image released four black and white issues of this series in 2008-2009, and then it just disappeared. I remembered it while looking for content for the show and decided to see if I could find out whatever happened to it. Well, in 2019, a 744-page, two-inch-thick omnibus was released by Oni Press, 40 bucks. It had been a 10-year struggle of moves, publisher changes, Kickstarter assistance, etc. I, naturally, pulled the trigger and ditched the first four issues, I believe, in the pile of crap I gave to Max. <laughs> this was really, really good. Heavy inks work really well portraying the jungle chaos. Highly recommend it. So at least, that's, that's at least the third time this show has cost me money completing stories. Max is no doubt celebrating it is good to know that the work continues no matter who's doing it I'm, I'm you know i'm happy no matter who sticks it to you so while rich tends to his wounds and while i sit here and chuckle satisfyingly or satisfactorily to myself 
We'll let you guys take a break as well and listen to a promo for another fine podcast form of entertainment out there. And when we get back, we'll be taking a look at the issue at hand. Do you like comics? The 1960s? How about middle-aged gay couples gossiping about their neighbors? Then you'll love Checkered Past. A loving examination of DC's GoGo Check branded comic magazines published from February 1966 to August 1967. I'm Dr. Bob. And I'm Dr. Husband. And each week we'll be your hosts on a trippy tour through mid-century four-color madness. Checkered Past. Available wherever fine podcasts are downloaded for free. So, as I said before the break, we are taking a look at Weird War Tales number 44 this time around. And Rich is here to hit you with the cover detail. Art by Joe Kubert. 25 cents. The line of DC superstars Weird War Tales banner with the various soldier heads continues. Over a magenta Weird War Tales title. Under the light of a full moon. A surprised, heavily armed American paratrooper lands on a sign that reads, We have been waiting for you. On either side of him, a total of seven skeletal U.S. paratroopers are hung up on trees by their chutes. Cover date, January, February 1976. Date of release, October 9th, 1975. I don't see any killjoy. Max, take it away. All right, so comments and commendations as it goes. I hate to say it, but this cover is a miss for me. One of the least engaging covers of the entire series, really. I know, I know, it's Joe Kubert, man, but it's just lazy, especially for something by Joe. All the figures are drawn as largely as possible, taking up as much cover real estate as they can, as if Joe just needed to get this one off the desk at the last second and didn't have time to fuss around with an actual scene. And the soldier is afraid of what? The banner laid out on the ground? I mean, sure, it's a bit disconcerting, this festive, like, welcome sign in the midst of all the hanging corpses. And maybe that would be extra terrifying now that I think about it. Big plastic birthday mat laid out with all the dead people hanging around. If you took it literally, it is a little scarier than I think it comes off at first. That all being said, my favorite part of this cover is the choice of hot pink for the title's logo this time around. It looks surprisingly good in that shade. Jumps right off the rack, that's for sure. This guy's loaded for bear. Thompson is slung across his chest, 45 on his hip, knife in his boot. And he gets the feeling it's not going to do him any good. The ink strike me as being a bit heavy, and a lot of the details seem lacking, especially in the dead paratroops' boots. I feel like a bit of a heel nitpicking an all-time grade on what is still a pretty cool cover, but this is not his best work. The colors on the sign match the issue's title, which, for me anyway, is another deduction. Sorry, but I don't feel particularly threatened by a magenta sign. Black? Sure! Blood red? Oh yeah! Hot pink? Have you been waiting to invite me to lunch? Call me! I do like the detail of the branches of the trooper broke off the trees as he broke through the canopy, falling to the ground behind him. Yeah, I mean, hot pink, probably more of a Barbie vibe. You know, as we record this uh, episode, the Barbie movie is out. So maybe you know, that was the intention here. And that that movie does look like it might be a little kind of 
a subtext of a horror movie. So I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to make it work here. But yeah, this could be him landing in Barbie land. And, and I think Weird War could do a good job of that. I know Grant Morrison tried in the 90s, but I feel like he missed on that one. So that's the cover for better or for worse, people. So Rich is going to take us into the first actual story behind this cover. Photo finish. Six pages. Script by Jack Olick. Art by Ernie Chua. John Hansen is a photojournalist attached to a U.S. infantry unit fighting in Europe in World War II. He curses his luck when he's too slow to capture on film the moment a sniper kills a GI. The captain calls Hansen a ghoul as a tank rumbles up to take out the sniper. Later, the captain asks Hansen what it is he's after. He's not like any other newsman. Hansen admits that he's after death, or at least a picture of it. One shot. The supreme moment of the instant of death. A picture like that would make him famous and earn a Pulitzer Prize. Blood money, the captain growls. No wonder my men dislike you. They'd like to be rid of you. And now, so would I. The next day, Charlie Company gets a replacement fresh off the boat, Private Davis. Hanson knows the new kid's experience will give him a chance at the photo he craves, and he sticks to Davis like glue. The old hands know a vulture when they see one. Sure enough, when two German fighters swoop in on the marching Americans on a strafing run, everyone else dives for cover. But Davis runs and is mowed down. Again, Hansen laments when he misses his shot and a nearby GI, Peters, snaps, You dirty! You wanted that kid to get blasted! That's why you followed him, but you won't jinx any more of us! And before Peters can slam his rifle butt on Hansen's skull, the captain orders him to back off. But from that moment on, Hansen is a pariah, shunned and ignored by the others. The isolation wears on the photographer's nerves until one night, when a white-robed death came to him as he slept. You want fame, and you shall have it, but the cost will be high. You wish to photograph a man precisely at the moment of death, and you will succeed. But on the day you take that picture, you too will die. Hansen bolts upright, awake, and positive he'd just been dreaming. He overhears the sergeant reminding Private Bentley to stick close on his first patrol and hurries to follow, hoping this replacement will give him the photo he desires. Waters start to fall as the Americans approach a farmhouse. The vets run for cover, but Bentley freezes. Hansen lines up his camera on the paralyzed soldier and gets the shot he dreamed of when Bentley is killed by flying shrapnel. But his celebration is cut short when death rises from Bentley's body, scythe in hand, and begins floating towards him. Hansen is aghast, realizing his dream hadn't been a dream after all. He flees, throwing away his camera. Too late. The last mortar shell explodes directly behind him and cuts him down. Hansen is pitied by the others, but not mourned, and his camera is brought back to headquarters. A week later, Hansen's replacement, Carter, arrives at Charlie Company, and the captain asks about the film from the camera. Turns out one of the pictures in it had made every paper back in the States. Hansen was famous, but Carter is confused when the captain remarks that the photo of Bentley must have come out. Who's Bentley? Carter pulls a photo out of his pouch and hands it to the captain. Now it's the officer's turn to be confused. How is this possible? 
There was only one explanation. When Hansen threw his camera away, the shutter tripped the moment it struck the ground, capturing Hansen at the moment of death. He'd gotten exactly the picture he was after to make it famous, but to get it, he had to die. Killjoy, History Minute, CNC, all in one, because there's no way I'm chopping all this up. <laughs> Page one, panel two, you see a helmet with what appears to be captain's rank, two vertical stripes on the back of it. Officers often had one vertical stripe on the backs of their helmets, so people behind them could tell they were an officer. NCOs often had a horizontal stripe on the back of their helmets for the same reason. Page four, panel two is a great panel showing Hansen's isolation. The other GI sitting around a warm fire while Hansen sits by himself under a blanket eating chow. But a fire at the front is a great way to draw fire. And I'll nitpick the last panel of the story that portrays Hansen's death shot in color because that's the only reason Max put me on the cast. Color film did exist even before the war, but it could be expensive and hard to find, especially during a war, and probably required a different developing process. Yeah, for pow effect in the story, it probably needed to be color, but for authenticity, it probably would have much more likely been black and white. The government also had a policy about not publishing photos of our casualties in the early days of the war. It wasn't until September of 1943 that Life magazine was permitted to print a photo of three dead GIs on a beach in New Guinea. The editorial accompanying it was very powerful. And I'll read the beginning of it. Here lie three Americans. What shall we say of them? Shall we say that this is a noble sight? Shall we say that this is a fine thing, that they should give their lives for their country? Or shall we say that this is too horrible to look at? Why print this picture, anyway, of three American boys dead upon an alien shore? Is it to hurt people? To be morbid? Those are not the reasons. The reason is that words are never enough. The eye sees, the mind knows, the heart feels. But the words do not exist to make us see, or know, or feel what it is like, what actually happens. The words are never right. The reason we print it now is that last week, President Roosevelt and the War Department decided that the American people ought to be able to see their own boys as they fall in battle, to come directly and without words into the presence of their own dead. And so here it is. This is the reality that lies behind the names that come to rest at last on monuments in the leafy squares of busy American towns. The editorial goes on, but, but, but that was the important part. However, I'm very doubtful a picture of someone being as graphically killed as Hansen was would be published even today. Robert Kappa got the shot Hansen wanted, and he didn't die to get it. The Falling Soldier is a black and white photograph taken by Kappa, claimed to be taken on September 5th, 1936. It was said to depict the death of a Republican soldier during the Battle of Cerro Mariano in the Spanish Civil War. Following its publication, the photograph was acclaimed as one of the greatest ever taken. But since the 1970s, there have been significant doubts about its authenticity due to its location, the identity of its subject, and the discovery of staged photographs taken at the same time and place. Considered one of the greatest war photographers of all time, Kappa would be killed in 1954 at the age of 40 in French Indochina when he stepped on a landmine. When I was visiting Bayeux, France in 2019, I discovered the Reporters Memorial. Dedicated in 2006, it lists the names of over 2,000 journalists that were killed in action 
assassinated, murdered, or otherwise died the performance of their duty from 1944 to today. Robert Kappa is there. So is the legendary Ernie Pyle, killed by a Japanese machine gun in 1945. Names are added annually. Some years only a few are added, others a whole new stone is required. Hansen would be listed here if his death was in late 44 or 1945. Just check the album. Goes without saying, there are plenty of embedded journalists out there that don't care if the subject matter lives or dies. They just want that Pulitzer. Makes them real popular with the troops. Like here. This one was totally predictable. Sorry. I've been talking a while. So I'll limit my call outs to two pages. Page one, both panels. Chan captures the action in both of them perfectly. Page five, panel five, the white robe death rising from Bentley's body to Hansen's horror is likewise aces. Okay, so I'll do uh, my little CNC here and say we got some great intro text being spoken by our helmeted host, but a boring logo and a passable drawing of the host at best. In the splash panel, however, right below it, we get an excellent and classically creepy specter of death providing the requisite plot summary panel trope, so that's okay. Page two, however, hits us with an awkwardly arrow-assisted flow between panels one to three, and it was needed. It's a rare storytelling bungle by Ernie Chan, in my opinion. On panel four, though, we get an accidental bit of time travel with a possible precursor to the new girlfriend meme. Now, We'll put pictures up in the album, but if you're just listening to the show, it's that meme where the dude is walking with his girlfriend and he's openly turning around and admiring a girl that just passed him by and his girlfriend is giving him a stare of death while he's doing it. There's a panel in this story, like I said, panel four on page two, that has that exact setup physically going on. So just funny to see those parallels when you come across them and to realize the depth of damage to my brain that the age of meme discourse has done to me. So anyway, while I think about whether I need therapy for that or not, I'll go on and say that on page three, panel one, the new kid replacement actually looks like a kid. That is no small accomplishment in comic book art history, folks. So many people can't do that, draw people other than looking like small adults. And, you know, children are hard enough, but a gawky 18-year-old like this kid, super rare to find someone that can portray that. But Ernie nails it there. So on page four, panel two, as Rich mentioned already, the image of Hanson the outcast is really well done. Bears repeating. One of my favorite panels in the story. On page five, panel four, that full-on grim brutality of Bentley's final moment is presented in stark, unadorned fashion. It perfectly presents the sheer ghoulishness of Hansen's reprehensible obsession. And of course, the kicker in the final panel of the story, which has got to be the first death selfie in comic books, brings everything to a fittingly ironic end. Predictable, sure, but eh, it's weird poor tales, baby. I say, not a bad start. So, first story's out of the way, and I got bad news for you people. I'm taking the rest of the stories in this issue. So, you know, given that y'all just turned off the podcast now, I could say anything I want. But 
<laughs> There's a reason for that, but you'll see. The next story is short to, to give you a little bit of reprieve. It's called Fear No Evil. It's four pages long. Script is by tried and true Jack Olek. Art is by the legendary Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Synopsis goes like this. It's the cover story tie-in. Under a full moon, a twin-engine transport filled with paratroopers drones over Germany. Delayed by a terrified paratrooper that just can't jump on command, the commanding sergeant is late going out the transport door. The sergeant is a hard case, a man without nerves, and he seethes in anger as the other trooper at the other trooper as he drifts miles away from the drop zone. His chute is snared in a tree overlooking an ancient cemetery, and the sergeant feels one of his legs break on the impact. Almost immediately, two Nazis on a motorcycle approach, and the sergeant has no time to unsling his Thompson. The Germans stop, and a lieutenant dismounts from the sidecar, pistol in hand to finish off the American. But they are startled by the cemetery's elderly groundskeeper. Stop! This man is already dead. Must you bring your stupid war even onto this hallowed ground? Has the war not wasted enough blood? The sergeant calmly plays dead as the groundskeeper and officer talk. And the officer soon agrees that there's no point wasting bullets on a corpse. But before leaving, the officer takes the sergeant's boots. As soon as the Nazis drive off, the groundskeeper tells the sergeant to cut himself down quickly. Sarge is grateful. You knew I wasn't dead. You saved my life. Why? Because there are still some of us who believe that shedding human blood is a waste, the groundskeeper replies, who helps the injured paratrooper limp into a small above-ground tomb. Sergeant is wary, but he's an old hand. If this is a trap, he is ready for it. As soon as the doors close in the tomb... A crowd of Germans rise from the shadows and advance menacingly on him. Cursing the groundskeeper for his duplicity, the sergeant opens fire on the Germans with his Thompson and finally understands fear when none of them go down. Fangs extend from the groundskeeper's jaw as he joins the others. I told you, sergeant, we're exactly what I said we were. Germans who do not believe in wasting human blood. <laughs> the end. Killjoy coming in. Page one, panel two. As the sergeant jumps from the transport, has two strikes. The plane is sporting insignia that the U.S. did away with in mid-1942 because the red circle at the star's center could be mistaken for the Japanese meatball insignia. As an aside, British aircraft operating in the Pacific did the same thing. Usually, the comics mistakenly show the post-war insignia with the red stripe. The story directly says the jump is taking place into Germany, so that's 1944 at the earliest. And the rank the sergeant wears, brace yourself, doesn't exist. Three chevrons, two rockers, and a diamond in the middle? Beats me. The diamond is a first sergeant, but you need a third rocker. Eliminate the diamond, and he's a technical sergeant, or a sergeant first class today we have a miscolored swastika armband on the wrong arm on page two panel five but since the action takes place behind the lines i will allow it's being worn at all all right fair enough 
comments and commendations, I'll kick it off and say it's a four-page story, so Rich and I are bound to repeat some of our call-outs here, but so be it. I'll start off with a gripe, though. Surprise! And I'll even save a huge gripe for Rich since he got there in the first, he got here first in the script anyway. We kick off page one with some really awkwardly worded intro text, coupled with a very pedestrian, especially considering the source, host drawing and title logo text. Not promising. However, on page two, panel one, we get a nice panoramic shot of a Halloween-ready cemetery, so that's cool. Also, I'd be remiss in my immaturity to ignore the super obvious shot to the nuts suffered by the Sarge in panels two and three, to which the soldier exclaims, my quote-unquote leg on page three, panel one. I like the grim contrast of the hanging corpse with the lively, smirking conversation happening nearby. And on panel three, we get a really nice silhouette panel and the final panel's pun on not wasting human blood is a nice groaner for better or for worse. Overall though, I gotta say this was a lower tier story featuring art by the legendary JLGL that lacks almost all of the strut that he had in his own debut in this very series. I don't know if I've ever bitched about physical story format before, but here we go. This is a four-page story. APO Weird War Tales is after page one, followed by two full pages of ads, two more pages of story, followed by four full pages of ads before getting to the last page of the story. So you're flipping through half the book reading the shortest tale in it. No wonder it feels longer than it is. But to said story, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez returns, pulling out all the classic horror comic stops, like silhouettes in front of a full moon in a cemetery as bats fly nearby, page three, panel three. Hell, it's almost too much. Don't use all the stereotypes in one panel, JL. And I personally like his take of the skeletal narrator on in paratrooper gear in the title. Olek's writing is pretty good, too. When you only have 11, I mean, four pages, predictability creeps in. You knew that elderly German had ulterior motives by page three, but what can you do? Well, I know what we can do is move on from that story, which we disagree on the value of a little bit, but that's okay, to the section that interrupts the story right after its first page, as you mentioned, the APO Weird War Tales Letters page. And Rich is going to kick it off with an old buddy of the letters page. Well, first, there's an editor's note, which we'll read to you. Joe Orlando says, as you may have noticed, management slipped a frequency change in on us after we closed last, last issue's letter column. Weird War Tales is being published bi-monthly so that we can supply you better material and give the magazine more consistent quality. Of course, if all of our loyal readers suddenly went out and bought every issue and talked their friends into doing the same, well, we might be monthly again before you know it. And now, on to the letters. And actually, you remember, there were a couple of uh, letter writers in previous episodes that actually suggested to maintain the quality that the comic go to a bi-monthly format. So, you know, someone was listening. Yeah, hang on. I got to tell you, that is never the case 
and publishing. The book goes down to bi-monthly because it ain't selling that good. So, <laughs> <laughs> so eh, okay, nicely spun. He tried. <laughs> Old friend of the show, Mark Schmieder, is here not once, but twice. <laughs> I'm not going to do both letters, but uh, we'll do the second one. Dear Joe, weird war gets better every issue. Kangaroo court-martial was really different. The idea of a soldier being court-martialed for a future crime was beautiful, but by a ghost jury? Weird War quite often contains an element of humor, and this was another fine example of such. Was it? Was it, though? Eh, whatever. Appointment with Doom had a predictable ending for anyone with the knowledge of high school chemistry, but was enjoyable. Well, yeah. <laughs> U-235, hello. These spoils of war was well-written and original, but had one major flaw. The author stated the curse as being the cause of Benson's losing his legs. No, it was his greed and nothing else that did him in. By neglecting this, the writer downgraded the story to a three rating. Art this issue by Drought, Yandok, and Kirchner, long time no see, was beautiful and unique and all wrapped in, in a sensational Kubert cover. Mark Schmieder, Concord, Massachusetts. For my letter, I could have gone with Linus Sabalius, you know, who's another stalwart. But after reading through what was left, pushing aside the Schmieders, I had to go with this one. This is a letter that I think is worthy of Batman's enemy, Two-Face. Starts off with, Dear Joe, after quite a few mediocre issues, you have returned with some nice artwork. Rick Estrada's artwork on The Soldier from Space was beautiful. His thick lines help the story's futility. There's another bit of phrasing I don't get, but okay. Howie Chaikin's art was ruined by Bill Drought's inks, but the two-pager was still nice. I'll pass over the warrior breed, since Gurnall's art was a yawn. Craig Ledbetter, or Craig Ledbetter, Houston, Texas. I mean, okay, you guys know I like Rick Estrada's art, but... His art helping the story's futility. Uh, I, I, I don't get it. Like, for me, it added kind of a pop sort of, like, absurdity to that story. I don't think Bill Drought did anything to ruin Howie Chaikin's art. But then, skipping the warrior breed because he didn't like Gurnall's? I don't know where this person's... And he seems to be a different person with every sentence. So, this was just a strange letter for me. I could not put myself in this person's shoes. And as I tried to, I became convinced that I should stop trying. So, <laughs> so just a strange one that jumped out at me as I had only two to choose from. So there we go. That is the letters page such that it is. And if you need more Schmieder, it's in there. With that out of the way and taken care of, we're gonna end this issue on a high note, spoiler with a story called The Day After Doomsday Part 3, The Emperor of Weehawken. Yes, folks, the saga of Barry of Bleecker Street returns and comes to an end right here in these eight pages scripted by Sheldon Mayer with art by Alfredo Alcala. So here we go. Synopsis for the end of this epic goes like this. Just like last time, the first three pages or so are a recap from the previous issue. We're still not reading it, so either go back and re-listen to that part of WWT40 or WWT43 or fake it. 
We won't know. When last we saw our heroes, Barry had been knocked unconscious when trying to prevent Jackie from being captured by the troops of the occupation. Coming to, he returned to the underground hideout to plan his next move. If he's to single-handedly storm the Emperor's palace to save Jackie, he needed to learn some of the ancient magic surrounding him. Just not that of the two-wheeled monster discarded on the floor. But first, a replacement for his lost fucking a quarter quarterstaff. One of the statues held a club shorter than his staff had been, but it was stout, made of two hollow metal tubes and a solid piece of wood that should suffice for his purposes. Weeks passed as Barry prepared a rescue. When the King of Pittsburgh visited Weehawken and a dozen of the prettiest slaves were needed to serve dinner, Barry acted and disguised himself as one of the Emperor's guards to sneak inside the palace. Jackie was one of the chosen slaves, of course, and she was furious when she saw Barry. So, you're one of them. You really had me fooled, beast. How much did you get for selling me? But before Barry could explain, another guard rushed in. Alarm! Manhattan soldiers on our parapets! In the confusion, Barry threw Jackie over his shoulder and ran off. But his feet didn't move as he glided away. He had wheels on his feet. He had gotten black and blue learning to use them. Meanwhile, the guards had discovered the Manhattan soldiers were really statues in uniform. False alarm! No wonder they hadn't moved. The guards quickly tracked down Barry, who used his new club to clear a path. They were amazed at the speed Barry had fled them. But the emperor spotted the wheels on Barry's feet and ordered the dining hall to be flooded with grease. It's the word, don't you know? Barry slipped and fell, dropping his club in the process. When the club struck the floor, however, strange magic created a blast of energy from its metal tubes, knocking a chandelier off the ceiling and setting the grease on the floor ablaze. In the chaos, Barry and Jackie escaped back to their underground lair. Despite the price on his head, Barry was now known as a dangerous sorcerer, and no one had the courage to bother them. All was peaceful, but suddenly Jackie vanished before his eyes and Barry found himself sitting at a table in a brightly lit room with a man dressed like one of the statues speaking to him. It took Barry a few moments to realize the hag's spell had worked. It was 1974. The security manager has to admit it was quite the tale. But could Barry prove it? How could I prove it? Barry asks. Simple. In your story, the old hag said, if you don't like it, back it. Obviously, she meant you could repeat the spell backwards. Zounds, tis worth a try. Maz Utrazark. And Barry vanished before the stunned manager's eyes. The end, people. Joy. Page five, panel four. Our longtime listeners may remember Weird War Tales number sevens, the 50 50 war, when I mocked the need to be an Olympic level athlete to be able to ski and jump with a hundred odd extra pounds clinging awkwardly to your back. Welcome to the sequel. Barry's been skating for what? 
a month and he's that good. He could skate and fight while Jackie is throwing off his center of gravity. I say the day. More importantly, page six, panel one. I know things have changed a lot since 1974, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say department stores weren't displaying loaded shotguns on mannequins. <laughs> call me crazy. Call me nuts. But call me. I'm more surprised he didn't accidentally trigger it before the rescue. You know how guys are. <laughs> and I'm just going to keep on moving on into the comments and commendations. Subtract the recap pages. And this had potential being a full-length battle tale. So I have to wonder if at some point it had been intended to be one. The final judgment for this three-part day-after-doomsday epic is... Two thumbs up! Mayor and Alcala knock it out at a park. So many art call-outs. The page one panel three splash of Barry walking in the woods with the ruins of Manhattan behind him. Page two panel one and page three panel two of our rotting narrator all chill leaning against other panels is awesome. Page four, panel two, you can see the flame coming out of Jackie's eyes when she recognizes Barry, who she thinks betrayed her. A medieval apocalypse tale. Who saw this coming? Honestly, I was kind of dreading this one when I first saw it in Weird War Tales 42, and it ended up being the first story this issue I did the synopsis for. I don't know if there are more multi-part stories coming, but this is a great start if there are. Okay, so I just got to say, you know, a store displaying a loaded shotgun in the hands of a mannequin in 1974. You're right. That is crazy. That's more of a 2023 thing. You know, that's something we'll do today. And not back then, though. We had safety concerns and whatnot. So for my actual CNC, I'll say, talk about a pick-me-up. After a strangely unimpressive outing from JLGL, of all people, and beneath an even more bewilderingly underwhelming cover by Qbert, it was a revelation to behold the first page of this story. The two-panel recap up top is well done, nice and concise, and we'll get back to that. And the skeletal host drawing is amazing, coupled with excellent intro text and, well, a decent title logo compared to what's come before in this issue. There's some effort put into it, at least. and. As Rich mentioned, the kick-ass host cartooning right at the top of page two with a rotten Robin Hood leaning on a panel as he chimes in. And it's an eight-panel counting the host on his own page that looks great and flows nicely. I mean, that's it's just freaking great. I mean, sure, it is just another full page of recap, but the recapping is all over by panel one of page three. And all of it just feels as if it was executed even better than last time. Can't knock it. Panel four of page four has a nice shot of a cobbed web mannequin clutching a club, which we now know is a shotgun. And in panel five, we find out that weeks have gone by since Jackie was taken. Nice hustle, Barry. <laughs> I know it's part of the killjoy here. But that picture on page five, panel one of Barry and Jackie's roller skating piggyback escape is one for the ages. And of course, page six starts off with an epic shot of Barry and Jackie slipping on all that kitchen grease with the gun going off and so on. It's just an incredibly good panel stretched across the top of the page. Panel three on that same page showing our dynamic duo fleeing the flaming fiasco is pretty nice to look at, too. 
I also really like the touch of the sign near the table that Barry is transported to by the witch's spell on page seven, panel three. Dining room set, $348.98. Some reason, I just like the little price tag sign hanging out there. It's just a nice touch. And of course, this being a DC comic, it's hard for me to ignore the link to Mixius Pitalik in the resolution of Barry's uh, predicament on page eight. Say his name backwards, and he goes back to his home dimension? Hey, <laughs> it's a DC comic. You know they know who Mr. Mixelplick, Mixius Pitalik, however you want to say his name, is. All right? So I liked it. This was a certified knockout for me in every category, folks. All hail Barry of Bleecker Street, even if he himself is the worst. So there you go. The saga has come to an end. The stories are over with and, and dealt with by us in fair and fine fashion. So now we'll see what else this issue has to offer in the form of our spotlighted ads. In the middle of the day after Doomsday recap on one of those pages filled with tiny ads for crap, we have the fastest comb in town. New Pops lightning fast, unbreakable nylon, red, blue, green, or yellow case. $2 value, only $1 each, or two for $1.75. Send money order only to Popper Enterprise, 215 East 26th Street, Erie, Pennsylvania, 16504. I remember seeing these out there back in the day. You act like a real badass with a switchblade, click, and all of a sudden, you're the Fonz. Happy Days reference, been on the air about a year, 1975, way before they jumped the shark. Just saying. Yeah, we all had one of those. I definitely had one of those things. It just, yeah, I think they were just given to you if you were a kid at that time. If you're walking down the street, someone would be like, hey, you need one of these. So for my spotlighted ad, uh, I'll say we've, we've definitely mentioned these toys before, and I use that term loosely. But I think this is the first time we've seen an actual ad for them in these pages. And that ad that I'm talking about is an ad for the Shrunken Head Apple Sculpture Kit. This is from Whiting, a Milton Bradley company. And it's a full page ad with a big old drawing of two fingers holding a chain that is looped to a shrunken head, a gruesome shrunken head with big old shock of white hair coming out of its mangled scalp, drawn by Mort Drucker, okay? <laughs> Covering the first, you know, the top half of the ad. And it says, this could be your head. Turn apples into shrunken head. Before you know it, you'll have shrunken heads hanging from your belt or around your neck. Buy your kit now and get a head start on your friends. There's an image bunch of kids wandering around the neighborhood with necklaces and belts of shrunken heads. Just, ah, just, we lived in a different time, okay? The ad goes on to say, having a shrunken head is like having Halloween all year round. Yeah, they call that being a goth later on, all right? You'll find shrunken head apple sculpture kits wherever toys and crafts are sold. Look for Vincent Price's pretty face on the cover. And there's a drawing of the box, which, yes, did feature Vincent Price holding up shrunken heads in his laboratory coat on the box. I got this kit for Christmas one year. And yeah, it, it did have that photo cover. And we made probably seven or eight shrunken heads before we were like, these things start to smell bad really fast. <laughs> but 
you know, worth it just for the time capsule here and to see an ad that features not only Mort Trucker, but Vincent Price at the same time. Holy 1970s people. That's a heck of an ad, especially, like I said, we're getting into the the years I actually have memories of here. So I'm going to be a sucker for a lot of these ads now. So uh, good news for me. I don't really know or care if it's good news for you. So moving on to the end of the show here. Yes, we're reaching the end, people. Hold on tight. We're going to go to a little section we like to call Got Any Last Words. And I do. I'll say this issue was a mixed bag for sure, but it was mostly mixed with good to decent stuff. And it had the high point of the incredibly satisfying and fun conclusion to the epic of the Barry of Bleecker Street three-parter. The shrunken heads, right, like I just got done rambling about, reeled in the years for me. And overall, I was still left thinking this wouldn't be a bad issue to hand someone, even if I'd rather give them the entire Bleecker Street saga all at once. Another solid issue of WWT. Despite an 11-page, four-page story, <laughs> some solid killjoy, a callback to the early reprint days of the show, some non-day-walking vampires, a history minute, and a successful wrap to the first multi-part story in the comics run. In fact, I think I'm going to give D.A.D. the overall win this episode. The next to-be-continued story has some big shoes to fill. I think this book is starting to hit its stride. Agreed. And Rich called it out twice now. And I got to say, I feel like I need to spend a little more time on it. You owe it to yourself if you have this issue to go and see how badly they laid out that four-page story. It's You can hear it in words, but you have to see it. Just like they said in that editorial about the picture of the war casualties, because these are equivalent subjects, folks, all right? So, <laughs> but you have to see it for yourself to see just how bad the decision to, to, segment, to sequence those pages was with four pages of story content. I can't, I can't imagine what, what they were thinking. It's, it's, it's insane. So yeah, if you have the issue, dig it out and re-experience the insanity of, of that sequence of pages. So, okay taking that little extra time because this time around at the dead letter office we're going to give our social media and gmail updates a rest this being the summer slowdown and everything we need things to sync up here people a new episode just came out when we're recording this i'll give you some time to chime in but next time we will return with what is sure to be a deluge of comments and feedback on our epic 50th episode but for now Rich has a special announcement for you. Call it bribery, but I still have a boatload of those stars from Sam Glansman's flag we tried and failed to give away as prizes a while ago. I'm still trying to figure out another giveaway, but in the meantime, we'd like to reward some of our listeners for past accomplishments. We have photographic evidence that Martin Gray and Jason Zeller have actually gone to our Redbubble page and bought some merch. Reminder that all proceeds from Redbubble sales just go right back into annual storage fees so you can go back and listen to episode five of the show if you wanted to punish yourself for some reason. No Intel report, no teaser. Why would you subject yourself to that? Thanks to their purchase, 
Martin and Jason have earned one star from a U.S. flag that Sam ran up outside of his home before he died. That's a Justin address, and we'll set it out to you. Here, here first, literally until supplies last. One to a customer. Buy some merch. Get a Sam star. The link will be reposted on all of our sites. Never let it be said that the Weird Warriors podcast doesn't give back to its listeners. All right? I mean, you can say it. We just don't want to hear it. Okay? Because Rich is sitting on a bunch of stars, and he tried to give them away, and and you couldn't make it happen last time. So here, you know, go to redbubble.com, search Weird Warriors podcast, buy something, send us a picture of you with it, not just I took a picture of the stuff on your website or whatever, and you'll get a really cool thing from Rich because he thinks about you people. He thinks about you. He puts the effort in. <laughs> if it was up to me, you'd all get nothing. All right. So speaking of that, Rich will also come along and tell you what more he plans to give you all in the teaser for our next episode. Weird War Tales 46. Nazi gladiators. Haunted caves. Mars attacks. Don't look now, but the countdown to issue 50 has begun. You know, they said we'd never make it. And we haven't yet. <laughs> but we made it through this one. And you know what this was? This was the Weird Warriors podcast. We were the Weird Warriors. We were the Batlam Bros. We're Max and Rich. And we promise to make war. No more.